So we're in 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, continuing in a series out of that letter, talking about how whatever God, whatever life throws at you, for good or bad, whatever life throws at you, you should constantly be making progress. There is no neutral gear in the Christian life. You should always be advancing towards Christ-likeness, towards fulfilling his purpose for your life. Last week, we talked about how we, in this day and age, uh, are, are, are experiencing more ridicule, more scorn from the culture than was previously evident. Uh, One way to look at it is, for most of our nation's history, Christianity was the dominant cultural influence on society, and so if you were a devout Christian, most of your neighbors saw you as a good person. And then we went through a period from about the 90s until the middle of this decade, uh, or the last decade, where it was sort of neutral, where, yeah, most people weren't Christians, but if you were a Christian, okay, you're fine, just, just don't bug, bug me about it and we'll, we'll get along fine. Now we're in a period that's kind of new in American history, where you know that a lot of your unbelieving neighbors look at you and think, you're the problem here. The things you believe, the things you talk about, the way you live, that's what's dividing us. That's what's causing problems in our culture. So last week we talked about how do you respond when you are ridiculed for your faith? And I want you to think about this for a moment. The people that Peter is writing to had it so much worse than we do. They were overwhelmingly poor. The people in charge of the culture at that time hated them, thought they were crazy, So they had a hard time advancing in society, hard time getting ahead, hard time getting out of poverty. And not only that, Peter knew, because he was living in Rome at the time he wrote this, we believe, he knew the the way the winds were blowing and that soon these people would experience real physical persecution. Some of them would go to jail. Some of them would be beaten by mobs. Some of them would be martyred for the faith. So what is he gonna say to prepare them for the day when their faith is attacked, not just ridiculed, but literally attacked. Here's what he says, and this is good for us to hear. Verse 13 of 1 Peter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter is literally telling us, when you are attacked for your faith, not just ridiculed, but attacked, your goal should be, I'm not gonna be afraid, I'm going to defend my faith, and I believe that God is able to take my defense of the faith and use it to put my enemies to shame. Meaning that some of them will repent and come to believe in Christ as their savior, As unlikely as that sounds, it's going to happen and it will happen and it has happened. But even if they don't, the people who are watching will change their minds about the faith based on watching the two of you interact. They're gonna say, okay, I was on his side before, but now I'm on her side because I see how she behaves and the things that she says in defense of the faith that she believes in. So how do we do that? How do we do that? First step, Peter tells us is, Remember who Jesus is. 
The first key is remember who Jesus is. And, and this is the way he says it in verse 15. Right? The end of verse 14 says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled. Then he says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ Jesus as Lord. So don't be afraid. Instead, honor Christ as Lord in your heart. Remember who Jesus is. And remember who's writing this. This is Peter. We know a lot about Peter's life. We know more about Peter than all the other 11 apostles put together, the, the original 12 disciples. We know that the night Jesus was arrested, Peter was the one who was the loudest, the most brash and boastful about, Lord, even if the rest of these losers run away from you, I will stay with you to the end. I will never leave you. And just a few hours later, three times, he's saying, I don't know who Jesus is. I have nothing to do with him. And even though Peter was forgiven by Jesus in this beautiful scene that we talked about Easter Sunday morning, you know that for the rest of his days, he wished he could go back in time and reverse that. So keep that in mind when you're reading what he says here. He's literally saying to us, he's virtually saying to us, don't make the mistake I made. I got caught up in this. I got afraid. I got intimidated by some unbelievers and I denied my Lord. Don't make the mistake I made because you'll never live it down. And let me just switch gears for a moment and, and, and say why it's so important for us to stand up for Christ. So important for us to be bold. Because, you know, I know people, by now I've been a pastor a long time, and I know that boldness comes easy to maybe five to 10% of you. You were just wired that way where you just have no problem uh, answering an objection or, or, or getting into a, a verbal discussion or, or speaking up. But the rest of us aren't that way. We'd, we'd much rather walk away. We'd much rather remain silent and not, not get into complicated dynamics like that. And yet the Bible consistently calls us to be bold. So I want you to think about this for a moment. And, and some of you know this because you're male, um, but the easiest way to get in a fight with a junior high boy is to insult his mom. Have you noticed this? Right, so, so here's 12, 13, 14 year old uh, Tommy and he's 90 pounds and he couldn't punch his way out of a wet paper bag, but you say something about his mom and he's up in your face, right? He's ready to throw hands. He's ready to go after you. And why is that? Well, because his mom is everything. His mom is the most important person in his life. He doesn't get girls at all and, and probably won't for a long time. Um, he, he feels insecure about literally everything, but he goes home and he knows his mom is gonna believe in him. She's gonna listen to his problems. She's gonna, she's gonna dry his tears. She's gonna say, you're gonna be all right. You're gonna make it. And not only that, his mom is probably the most courageous, heroic person he knows. Because let me just stop, and it's not just because it's Mother's Day that I'm saying this, but we need to acknowledge, acknowledge this once in a while. You know, we, we, love, we love athletes, and we love uh, you know, war heroes, and we love first responders, and yes, there are, you know, there are reasons why we love those kinds of figures, and we idolize them, but, but if you're a mom, you brought a human being into the world using your body. And that is absolutely amazing. That ought to just fill us with awe and wonder. And you did it knowing that it was going to be hard. In fact, some of you did it more than once. I, I, I used to say, you know, if, if men were the ones that had the babies, there would be no babies. And then somebody overheard me and said, no, 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 we're men. One of us would try it, right? There'd be one. There'd be one baby and the rest of us would all gather around and okay, let's see what happens to Jim Bob. Okay, I'm out. Nope, nope, not, not for me. 
And yet, women have done this consistently. And, and they bring this life into the world. And, and so, you know, little Timmy looks at his mom and says, you're everything to me. I'm not gonna let somebody say something about you. And if that's the case for him, and, and by the way, it's still that way. I mean, I'm, I'm 51 years old and I'm not gonna get in a fight with you probably, but, but if you ever said something about my mom that wasn't true, I would correct you because this is the woman who didn't just bring me into the world. Uh, more than any other single person, she's responsible for my faith in Christ. I, I owe her everything. And what Peter is saying is, you owe Jesus even more, even more than you owe your mom. Your mom may have sacrificed in innumerable ways, but she didn't die for your sins. Even if she wanted to, she couldn't have done that. Jesus is the one who did. You know, you know that that's what the gospel is, right? That the most important truth you will ever learn is that God loves you so much that he'd rather die for you than live without you and he literally did on the cross. And so you owe him everything. And so how dare you not speak up when you hear someone say something about Jesus or about his teachings that you know to be untrue. And not only that, not only should you stand up for him because of what he's done for you, but because the others need to hear. They need to hear the truth. You see, the truth about your mom is one thing, but the truth about Jesus is what saves people's souls. So if people are walking around saying things about Jesus and about his teachings and about his movement and about what it means to follow him, and you know they aren't true, then if you don't correct them, you're letting falsehood that sends people to literal hell continue to spread uncorrected. So yeah, I know it doesn't come easy to most of us, but pray for boldness and step up. Remember who Jesus is. Honor Christ in your Lord as Christ in your heart as Lord, as holy. And, and secondly, not just that, but be ready to give a response. That's the second thing that Peter tells us. Be ready. This is the most famous part of the passage in verse 15 when he says, always be ready to give a defense, to make a defense. That word defense, some of you know this, is the Greek word apologia from which we get our English word apologetics. Now, some of you, I know because I've had conversations with you, some of you are really into apologetics and some of you have your favorite apologist that you listen to his podcasts or you read her books or you watch his, his uh, YouTube videos where he debates atheist scholars and puts them to shame. And that's great. I, I love, for, for example, I love William Lane Craig. I think he's fantastic, this brilliant guy who stands up for the faith. I love people like that. I'm glad God called them. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. Peter's not talking to scholars. He's talking to poor people, mostly slaves, uneducated, bottom rung of society. I guarantee every person in this room and every person watching me at home is of much higher social status and of much better education than almost everybody who first read this letter. And yet Peter is able to say to them, you need to be ready to make a defense. And that word defense literally is the same word you would use for being on trial for your life. So you need to be ready to give a testimony and to say, this is why I believe what I believe. This is what Christ has done for me. And not only that, in the same way uh, an accused person who testifies on their own behalf is gonna get cross-examined, you need to be ready to be cross-examined because the world will do that. I don't know if you're aware of this, you should be, but thanks to the internet, every hostile unbeliever knows every argument against Christianity. 
They've seen it. They've read it. They've seen, okay, these are the questions that Christians can't answer, and these are the flaws in their thinking, and these are the contradictions in the Bible, allegedly. Here's all the things you can do to stump your Christian friends. And so you're going to meet people who are going to come up to you and say, aha, what about this? And you know what? For a long, long time, to our shame, there's been this idea in Christianity that a simple faith is better. By simple faith, I mean, just follow the rules. Just do what you're told. Give your offerings, pray your prayers, and don't worry about all that other stuff. That's, that's for the theologians. That's for the people in ivory towers. And yet Jesus was, was very clear when, when he was asked in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? You know what he said. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. But he also said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. You know what's interesting? Jesus didn't make that up. That was a quote from the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy 6.5, except Jesus tweaked it. He added something. By the way, he's the son of God. He can do that. You and I are not, and we cannot. He added the phrase, with all your mind. That wasn't in the original. Why did he do that? because he wanted us to know, yes, serve the Lord with your strength, serve the Lord with your soul, serve the Lord with your heart, but use your mind too. You don't have to have a, a degree in, in philosophy or metaphysics. You don't even have to have a degree. You just need to learn. Paul would come along later in Romans 12 too and say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how we grow. That's how we become in the image, made into the image of Jesus. It's by changing the way we think. And you don't change the way you think until you learn. So I'm saying all that to say the way to grow is, yes, through doing, but it's also through learning. It's also through when you hear a tough question or when you see something in the scriptures you don't understand or when someone comes to you with, with a question you can't answer or you experience something in life that just doesn't make sense according to what you've been taught about God. The last thing in the world you should do is just shove it down and say, oh, I just don't need to worry about that. That's above my pay grade. No, no. This will never be, as long as, as I'm here, and I, it probably never has been, a church where you come to us with a question and we say, oh, no, 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 good people don't ask those kinds of questions. Any good gospel-centered church is a church where you can follow and chase after the tough questions and wrestle with the truth until you find it because all truth is God's truth. And we're not afraid of inquiry and we're not afraid of tough conversations. And we want you to come and sit down with your life group and say, here's something I've been wondering about. And for all of you to just sit down and, and work through it together or to come to us as, as ministers and, and us uh, wrestle with these things. But you need to do that. And, and, and here's an interesting thing that'll happen. When unbelievers come to you, and they will come to you, by the way, notice what it says, he says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone, to anyone who thinks you're a big fat jerk because of the way you treat them. No, that's not what it says. Although let's be honest, that's a lot of the ridicule we as Christians get is because we've descended into the mud pit with the rest of society and we're acting like everybody else. And so they say, yeah, you're not like Jesus at all, right? No, he says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. 
People should come to us asking, why are you so different? Why are you so forgiving? Everybody else I know gets vengeance when people are mean to them. How come you Christians refuse to do that? And you can say, because I know I'm forgiven. Because I have this hope that when I stand before the perfect creator of the universe, he's gonna see no flaws in me because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if I'm gonna be forgiven, how can I hold a grudge against someone else? And when they come to us and say, well, everybody else wears these clothes and chases after this, the house in this neighborhood and, and has to drive this car and, and wear these shoes and, and carry this purse and, and have this job title and date this person and, and it's all about uh, success in our eyes and how come you Christians seem to be content with what you're given and so content in fact that you give things away? What's so different about you? And you can say, my treasure's in heaven. Yeah, anything that comes to me on earth, okay, I'll enjoy it and I'll give some of it away because that's what God calls on me to do, but that's not the point of life. And what, why aren't you sad when bad things happen? Well, I, well, I am. I, yeah, I'm sad that my loved one has passed away. I'm, I'm sad that I can't do some of the things I was able to do before the accident. I, I'm sad that I don't have the money this year that I had two years ago, but I've got joy in my heart because I know the best is yet to come. If this world was all there was, yeah, I'd be as depressed as you are, but I've got something great waiting for me. If you're not hearing these questions, then you're not living the right way. They should be asking you, why are you so different? And when that happens, when that happens, you have to be ready to make a defense. So here's what I've learned about unbelievers, and you probably know this. A lot of them think we're basically sheep. And I don't mean in the Psalm 23 sense, right? I mean, they think we are brainless cult members. That's the negative perception of Christianity today. That every Sunday you come in and you sit down here and I pump your heads full of propaganda and you just blindly believe it and walk out and go about your business, having been brainwashed into believing something. And so when they come to you with those zinger questions and assertions that they're spreading around on the internet, what they expect for you to do is to get angry or to break into tears or to get defensive. So when instead you either have already thought that issue through and you say, well, here's how I feel about that. Here's how I reconcile that with the scriptures and here's what I believe about God. Or if you can't do that, because, okay, let me just admit, even though I've been a pastor for over 20 years and have been the, act, uh, been the beneficiary of more education than I deserve, I still get questions from unbelievers I can't answer. So it's not just you, it's me. When that happens, when you're able to say, you know, that's a good question. I'd like to know the answer to that too. Can you give me a couple of days? I'm gonna go pray about this. I'm gonna do some research. I'm gonna talk to some people and I'll get back with you because you've raised a good issue. And when you do that, that blows their mind because they go, oh, well, Christians actually do think for themselves. And you say, yeah, because all truth is God's truth. And when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. So always be ready to make a defense. Be bold, do your homework, and then there's one more thing. Because if you get this last thing wrong, the first two don't even count. Number three, he says to us, focus on winning them, not defeating them. Now those aren't Peter's words, they're mine. He says it this way, but do this with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to make a defense, but do it with gentleness and respect. 
Your goal is not to win an argument. Your goal is not to crush your opponent. Your goal is not to give back to him or her what they've been giving to you. Your goal is to persuade them that Jesus can save them, that he's what they've been missing all this time. Think think about it this way. If you were an EMT and you're riding in the back of an ambulance and you, you show up at a, at a, at a site where there's been a a terrible car accident and you get out and you find a guy laying unconscious in a ditch? Do you grab him by the ankle and just drag him to the ambulance and tell your buddy, hey, grab his ears and I'll grab his belt loop and we'll just sling him in? No. It's your job to get that person to the doctor as quickly and as safely as possible. You're gonna take extreme care. You don't wanna injure them further. Now, that guy may be awake. He may start swinging at you. He may start cussing at you. He may may be angry at you. He may not be in his right mind or maybe he just doesn't like you. You still have to be gentle with him. It's still your job to get him to the doctor. As Christians, we need to understand that every unbeliever we meet even the ones who seem to be so successful, even the ones who seem to have everything this world has to offer, even the ones who are absolutely hostile toward you and me, we need to understand that every single one of them has a pit in the the center of their hearts that they cannot fill and it is driving them crazy and it is destroying them emotionally because they're separated from the source of all good things. And if that reality continues unabated, it will continue forever. So you talk about injury. You talk about someone who's on life support, who needs critical care. It's our job to get them to Jesus as best we can. It's our job to be as gentle and persuasive as we possibly can be. And here I need to say something that's gonna make some of you angry and that's okay. You can be mad at me because I'm. I, this is me. This is me talking. This is not the Lord talking, but I'm your pastor. I'm the one with the microphone. So you gotta listen to me, all right? So here's what I have to say. This is why, and I say this a lot and you still keep coming. So that's a good sign. This is why you need to limit the amount of time you spend on those talk shows uh, on the 24-hour news channel that we marinate in night after night, uh, on those political uh, memes and, and, and pages we, like to, we love to share on social media, on the things we listen to in our cars, because here's why. Because that's discipling you to do the exact opposite of what Jesus has taught us to do. That's discipling you to see people who think differently than you as the enemy, as people who are ignorant, as people who deserve what they get, as people who are evil and must be crushed. And so I, I just say, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not God. You watch whatever you wanna watch. You, you answer to him, not to me. But just ask yourself, am I being discipled by 24-hour news guy who, who, who speaks every night? Or am I being discipled by the one who got crucified for our sins and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Do this with gentleness and respect. That's the way of Christ. Anything else is not, is not the way of Christ. It's boldness, but it's humility. It's, it's standing up, but it's doing it with gentleness and respect. And unless you do it with gentleness and respect, you'd better just keep your mouth shut. And, and I'll, let, let's just acknowledge, we won't always win. There will be times 
If you're bold enough, you will, you will have this conversation many times over the course of your life, and some of those conversations will not end as fruitfully as you hoped. But if you're representing Christ with, bold, with boldness combined with humility, with gentleness and respect, with integrity, you're planting a seed in that person's heart. Someday, someday down the road, they may experience a personal crisis and they'll look back on the one person who was clear-minded, who had integrity, who actually seemed to love them and not just be wanting to win a debate and think maybe, maybe what they said has some merit. And in the meantime, there are other people watching this interaction between you and this person. There's those other unbelievers who maybe aren't quite as hostile and outspoken but they've never really given the Christian faith a shot before and they see you talking and they think, there's more to this than I thought. And there's believers who are watching and some of them have been timid in the past and they're looking at you thinking, well, she's no preacher, he's no scholar and yet look at how they're able to stand up and speak so, so compassionately and yet eloquently. I, I, I guess I should do that too. You have no idea the impact of your words. So here's an illustration of that. I love this story. Russell Moore, uh, for many years, the, the leader of the Southern Baptist uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, now just a scholar, writer, he was depressed several years ago about the state of our culture and how everything's declining, how the church just isn't reaching people like they used to. And, and he was talking to an older man in the faith, Carl F.H. Henry, great theologian. And he went to him and he said, Dr. Henry, do you have any hope for the future? Here's what, here's what Henry said, I love this. He said, of course there's hope for the next generation, but the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They might still be pagans right now. He said, who knew that Saul of Tarsus was gonna be a great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up C.S. Lewis or Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who once they were saved by the grace of God, became mighty warriors for the faith. And so when, when Moore sat down and, and wrote this down, he wrote the following, and I, I love this. I, I've, I've quoted this many times. He said, keep this in mind. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin fish bumper decal on the back of the car. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a frat house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. And we just don't know what God can do when we speak the truth in love. Because here's the thing, most of the unbelievers you know, my guess is most of them have never, had this, have never heard the truth spoken in love. Many of them have heard the truth. Many of them grew up in church, but they've never heard the truth in love. So what does that mean to you today? I just wanna offer this. Some of you, when you heard this, as you've been listening, you're like, okay, Jeff, that's fine. A little 30 minute pep talk, great for me. I need more. I'm surrounded by people on my campus, in my workplace, in my friend group, in my, maybe even my family. And they're smarter than me and they're throwing our arguments at me that I don't know how to respond to and they're asking me questions that I don't know how to answer and I would really like some training. If that's you and that's how you feel, please, please send me an email, slip me a note, let me know. 
If, if it's just a handful of you, then I'll let you know about some, some uh, resources that have been helpful to me. Maybe we can read them together and I can help answer some questions. If it's a bunch of you, then that tells me and the rest of the staff that we need to have an actual apologetics course over, over several weeks. But if that's true of you, if that's something you need, let us know. As for the rest of us, as for all of us, what I'm asking you to do is just make a covenant with your heart to say, from now on, when someone attacks my faith, when someone makes me feel dumb for what I believe, when someone insults me or says something incorrect about the Lord, I am not going to hate them. I'm not gonna blast them. I'm going to pray for them. That's the start. I'm gonna, even if I don't know what to say, I'm gonna pray for them. Because praying for them accomplishes two things that I know of. Number one, it has an impact on the person you're praying for. Their heart gets softened. God arranges, you know, like Gentry said, divine appointments with that person. And it also changes you. Because what I've learned is it's pretty hard to go on hating somebody when you're praying for them on a regular basis. And you start to see that person not as an enemy, but as someone for whom Christ died as a lost child, a lost sibling, as someone who is literally dying of thirst because they've never had the water of life. And so you never know what can happen once you finally preach, speak the truth in love. So let's do it and see what God does.